This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress. Of all the new initiatives introduced in recent years by Racing New South Wales, none have been more widely acclaimed than the weekly Tab Highway races. Introduced four years ago, the Tab Highways have proven to be a tremendous stimulus for country racing stables as new owners constantly look for the right horses to bring to town. At first, Trainers like Matt Dunn, Danny Williams and Terry Robinson dominated the highways, but nowadays the results prove that many and varied stables have learned to identify the kind of horse they need to travel down the highway. $75,000 in prize money and an assortment of race distances are making these races highly competitive and stimulating healthy betting trends. The Tab Highways are a big part of the new world of Sydney racing. Jack Green was a legendary trainer, Kevin. You would have been aware uh, of his record and his history and the things he'd achieved on the turf. And he trained some terrific horses, including Sky High and Skyline. He took a real liking to you, didn't he? I, I got on good with him. Um, and, you know, he, he gave me a lot of winners and, uh, yeah, he was, it was very sad when he got he, he got killed in Melbourne. You know, tram hit him in a car. It was you know very sad, but he got me on my way. George Ryder was another great fan of yours. Uh, he was kicking up for you all the time with the Arabs trainers, and uh, you won on other Arabs horses like Caprizio and Dance a Lot, Chelsea Lady, Cinch, Schema. And Gretel. Now, there's one, Kev. She was your first Group 1 winner, Gretel, in the Sires Produce Stakes. Yeah. Um, the Arabs were very good to me. Uh, and George Ryder. Uh, he, and Terry Blossom was their trainer then. Um, and, uh, yeah, we had a lot of, lot of luck. He used to buy a lot of good fillies and uh, syndicate them out. There'd be 500 people in the syndicate. And only ten could come to the races, like to come into the members. But uh, yeah, he, he did. He got all those people in. But Ron Bickley used to love it when um, Ron Bickley's the guy that takes the pictures of a horse winning. Mm. And um, if I win on one on one of him instead of getting ten owners, he used to get about four hundred out of the job. <laughs> so four hundred people that buy a picture of the yeah. yeah. Well, so it was. Ron's, Ron's long retired, of course, Kev. Uh, yes. And currently, of course, we have people like uh, Mark Bradley of Bradley Photos and Steve Hart Photographics, both very professional men uh, who followed on in the footsteps of the great Ron Bickley. Steve's been around for a long time. And, you know, he's Steve's, Steve's the guy who started the Christmas at, uh, at the hospitals. Mm. And we used to go early in the early years and it's still it's been going now for 30 years but Stephen started it uh, so he's been around a long time also. Interesting to note that the colours of the Arab syndicates were the colours used today by the Arrowfield group yellow and black diamonds with a yellow cap Yep, that's the same colours Masara Your first city treble came pretty early on, it was a Canterbury meeting 
19th of April 1972. The horses were Major Vet, Gentle Scope and Singing Sands. Now, Singing Sands, two years earlier, was your first winning ride in an apprentice's race at Rose Hill. Yeah, uh, that was um, that was an exciting day to ride three winners as an apprentice. Yeah, so it was it was it was quite good. I know I just come out of my apprenticeship then. I'm sure. Mm. Uh, yeah, I can't think. But, well, he must have been yeah. a tough old fella. Singing sounds, Kev. He raced on for a long time. Those days you give them steroids and all that stuff, you just keep them going. Uh, but uh, it was, yeah, he was a good, tough old horse, you know, and lovely to ride. Yeah, he was a gentleman. A very important early Group 1 win for you was the 1976 Doncaster on a horse called Authentic Air for Tommy Smith. The horse had won the Epsom the previous spring with Bill Kamer in the saddle. And I suppose Tom had a swag of runners in the Doncaster. That's how you got on him, no doubt. He had eight, Good. and he wanted everyone to be running second or third. <laughs> everyone got the same same instructions, <laughs> second or third, be right up there. I was back second last or something, saying, oh, geez, he's going to blow up when I get back. Well, he's gonna blow. And then all of a sudden, the little runs come, the little runs come, and then, mm. yeah, he... he Got up and won, which was very exciting. Well, he was a pretty good horse, Kev. I mean, he won an Epsom and a Doncaster in the same year. Not many can do that. No, he was very good. Kevin Langby told me once that Tommy Smith insisted uh, that every runner be as close as possible uh, in running. Kevin said he'd love you to be in the first two or three. Well, keeps you out of trouble. And he had them that fit that they could be there. Um, and that's like Gay. Gay, most of her horses are up ridden the same way. Mm. Um, and when you're doing your form and having a look, where you say, "Well, there's going to be speed on because Tommy's got one in," so he mm. used to know that there's a bit of speed in the race, and cause Tommy's would always be there. It was easy, easy riding for him. In 1980, Neville Begg had two runners in the Golden Slipper. Fiancé, who'd won the Silver Slipper the previous spring, and Dark Eclipse, who didn't show a lot early on, but she grew a leg in the two weeks before the Golden Slipper. Now, you thought Ron Quinton might switch from Fiancé to Dark Eclipse, but he stuck with the other filly. Yeah, fiance was very good, and but she drew off the track. Uh, I drew in the middle, and um, yeah, I was I'll right up because you, you didn't have to put your riders down to Friday morning, and right up to the last few days, I didn't know if I was going to be riding dark eclipse or not. Um, so it was good and good to get on her and and win the win the slipper. I was looking at the replay again the other day. She came from a fair way back and she won like a six to four chance. Yeah, she won easy, you know. And, oh, John, was, you get confidence riding some horses and I know it was a group one, but I've got to say it was one of the most confident days that I went out to think that this is just going to win. Mm. And, 
yeah, I, I was so confident the the night before and that the, that day that she was just going to win. She was raced initially by Murray Bain, a very well-respected veterinary surgeon who had passed away some time before that slipper. And I think his wife and daughter were there uh, to yeah. accept the trophies on, on his behalf. Yeah, they were both there. Yeah. They were, they were very excited too. You'd ridden for them previously, Kev. You won some races on a really nice little mare called Little Gumnut in the same colours. Yeah, she was she was good. Uh, she she ended up going to Queensland and winning one of those big races. Um, yeah, she was very good. Ron Quinton had a dilemma in the spring of 1982. Did he stay in Sydney to ride Dalmatia in the Epsom or did he go to Melbourne to ride Emancipation in the Edward Manifold Stakes? Ron stayed in Sydney. You got the ride on Emancipation at Flemington and at that time, this was very early in her career, Kev, she'd only had four starts, she'd won them all. So there was a bit of pressure, wasn't there? Well, you know, you didn't want to get beat on her and I I knew how good she was and I was stuck in amongst them at one stage and then all of a sudden a little gap come and I, she just exploded through it and I thought, you know, that, then everyone knew how good she really was. I think she won 27 races, John. Mm. No, she won 19. 19, And yeah. that, that was the only day Quinton didn't ride her. Yeah, he rode her all the time. Mm. Yeah. Okay, let's whip through a few other Group 1s before we talk about one of the best horses you ever rode. You got yourself on a really good stayer in 1988 by the name of Lord Highbrow. You won the Doombin Cup, the Brisbane Cup and the O'Shea Stakes in the same year for a very popular trainer, Neville McBurney. What a great trainer of stayers he was. Yeah, he was New Zealand trainer. He was very, very good. Um, the the year he won the the Brisbane Cup, he could have pulled the role. He won so easy. He really just, you know, I don't know how far he won by, but I hadn't moved on him. It was uh, he, he he won everything that that he went in. He was yeah, very good horse. The nineteen ninety four Stradbroke was a special one for you. You rode that marvellous little racehorse, All Our Mob, which gave Brian Guy his first Group 1 winner. He must have been a lovely horse to ride, Kev, All Our Mob. He was. It's easy, easy to ride. You put him anywhere. Um, and Brian lost him just after that, I think. He went to Gay and yeah, she she won a few races. But, um, yeah, I... I, I was suspended and I appealed and I got one day off, so I was lucky enough to mm. to go up and ride him. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a, a good time. Yeah, he was sold uh, not long after that Stradbroke win. I think his previous owner, his original owner, Curly Lyle, had passed away and uh, the estate decided to move him on and he was purchased, I think, by one of Gay's Asian owners at the time and... He raced in those orange and yellow colours for the rest of his career. Wayne Harris finished up winning a new market on him. Yeah, he was. He was I, I'd say he would have won five, at least five Group Ones, wouldn't he? I, oh yeah, I, yeah. You know, but he, he, he won. He was, yeah, 
Yeah, very nice horse to ride. And if he didn't win them, Kev, he was placed in them. He was always around the money. Oh, he was a lovely horse, all our mob. Let me remind you about a skinny-looking mare called Palace Revolt who had 44 starts for only two wins. One of them was a very ordinary midweek race at Canterbury. 14 months later, with only 48.5, crikey, you could ride light in those days, she won the Sydney Cup. Now, Kev, the track was a bog. Most of the field were close to the outside fence. You took a punt and stayed close to the inside fence. I, I spoke to Neville Begg and I'd only just come back from Ireland and the whole day it was, the track was terrible and everyone was staying out wide and I said to him, I think I should stay to the inside and when I come to the, to the top of the straight, then move out again. And the whole race, I've I got to say, I think it's my best ride ever. Really? Yeah. It's because I, I said to Neil Payne, he was on uh, one of Freeman's. I said, I'm going to the inside, come with me. And I didn't want to be on my own there, but we were we were on the inside, on the fence where no one would be. Everyone else was 15 deep, going around all the turns, like, and, yeah, she was going to win a long way out because I just pulled her out when I got to the top of the straight and, she, yeah, she won very easy. She wasn't much to look at, was she? She was a skinny and <laughs> she, she, was only, she was only very ordinary. Yeah, two wins from 44 starts. It's hardly emancipation. Kev, to a horse now that you loved and respected, the gutsy, genuine, free-striding, stylish century who had more trainers than he had feeds. Noel Doyle, Bart Cummings, Bill Mitchell, his owner took over at one stage, Dick Monakin. Your first ride on him was in the 1989 Cox Plate. You rode him at 48.5 and you almost got away with it. Yeah, I uh, got me one of those Arab horses. Uh, Elmer. Got me the last, yeah, got me the last drive, we five lengths in front of the rest of the field. Mm. Um yeah, he he was he he would kind of silly to say this, but without if if he had another owner, look, he was a great guy, Dicker, but he just got involved too much, mm. um, and he used to just say, "Go out and break their hearts," you know. Um, they were the instructions. And, yeah, break their hearts. Bo mm. Rogue was around that, those times, and he used to just go out and lead by twenty. Well, he everyone loved Bo. Mm. And um, he just wanted him to do the same. But uh, he's the, the last time I rode, I got taken off him a couple of times. And the last time I rode him, I rode him in the Queen Elizabeth. And I said to Dick, he'd give me all the instructions. I said, Dick, I'm going to show you how he should be ridden. Anyway, I held him up a little bit and. Um, got to about the 800 and then got going on him and he won the Queen Elizabeth. Mm. And if he if he couldn't have been, if he could have ridden, even when I won the derby on him, I took my time to get to the front, you know, like mm. I took everyone's waiting for him to go to the front, but it, yeah. I 
it took me three furlongs before I got there and just yeah, give him you, that bit of a rest. You're talking about the Victoria Derby a week after Vic- he won the uh, a week after you ran second in the Cox Plate. He won yep. the Victoria Derby, but as you said, you didn't lead all the way on that occasion. No, I just took my time and got to the front, and then you know he could sprint for eight hundred when other horses couldn't. And you know, if if he just gave him that little bit of a chance early, like he, he won mile and a half races and also won thousand meter races. You know, he he was he was a very good horse. And then he went to stud, and I think the owner got involved then, and yeah, he, he never did any good at all. He also took you to Japan for the nineteen ninety Cup, famously won by Better Loosen Up. In hindsight, you wished you'd stayed at home. What happened? Well, he had a he had a, a look. It was the best the best place you could ever be is in Japan. To, to ride in Japan Cup, you you get on the horses and then you go through these tunnels. And I drew number one. And as I come out of the tunnel, there's silence, silence. As I come out up through the tunnel, then the crowd. And there's 100,000 people there. They were all roaring and cheering. I thought I'd won the race. I started pumping air and getting all excited. <laughs> this is coming onto the track. Coming onto the track, yeah. I, the, the, just the noise of every – because everything's silent. And then all of a sudden that noise of everyone cheering. Yeah. But he had a terrible mouth. And we were cantering him around to the, the barrier. And then all of a sudden the briary start, horses started coming past me. And he went to take off, and the bridle come through his mouth. Wow. So I had, I he only had one rein, and I, I got off him to fix the bridle. Mm. Well, as I got off him, he decided to take off. Oh goodness! So, so I'm lucky. It's fifteen minutes before the race, and we get a. They, they end up catching him because he at the end of the barriers, and they were going to scratch him. And I asked the bet. I said, "Look, just." Give him a little bit more time, you know. And they just before the race, they took his heart rate and he settled down, and it was good. So they said he could run, but he had no hope of leading those people over there. Those, that you know, they, they have pacemakers and everything in those races. He, yeah. he, 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 he was off the bit most of the way. It was a good feeling to see better loosen up come by, though. Mm. Oh, of course it was, with Michael Clark on board. Kev, was Stylish Century the best horse you ever rode? Well, Emancipation would have been, but he was the best for me. Mm. He was, You know, he won three group ones or, you know, he was Queen Elizabeth for Derby, you know, he front second on the Cox Plate. And, yeah, he was very good. I, I, When he was with Billy, I used to get a float and go and take him down, down to the beach some afternoons and um, you know I got very close to him and uh, he, he was he was just a black beautiful horse yeah only a little fellow wasn't he and I remember seeing him at the stables at Randwick one day when Noel Doyle first brought him to Sydney and I was struck by his little feet he had pony feet yeah I don't remember <laughs> I can't remember his feet. But, <laughs> you yeah. remember his ears? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say, Kev, you had four wonderfully successful seasons in Ireland for a wonderful trainer called Ted Curtin who died only a few years ago. 
he was a, he was a very good man. Um, he had his own track. And Nelson Bunker Hunt, who used to be in America, and um, he'd send all these two-year-olds over. You know, he sends 42-year-olds over, well-bred two-year-olds. And John, they were steering jobs. You'd go to those country places, like there's there's 26 tracks in Ireland, and Ted would take them everywhere, and, you know, he was riding four winners a week on these horses that were just so well-bred. When they were four, he'd take them back to America when they were solid and sound and... But the first few years, he'd send them to England or Ireland. You got a big kick out of one win in Ireland, a race called the Moy Glare Stud Stakes. It was a group one for the two-year-old fillies over 1,400 metres at the Curra, another magnificent race course. Was that one of Curtin's? Yes, it was. That mm. was, yeah. Yeah, she won. Uh, and then we took it to Royal Ascot. And the, those back those days when I was over there, no one knew, knew what Royal Ascot was. You know, everyone knows what it is now because TV's so close and brought everything together. But mm. when I first went over to Royal Ascot and saw the Queen come down, it was just, just you know, just how good is this to look at? Because she loved the races. Mm. Uh, I, I rode in the Queen's Cup and she was probably five metres away from me and I, I wanted someone, I was just going to idle up the side and get a picture, but there was, no one had a camera. <laughs> no, no one had a camera. So, That's yeah. But, probably um, a good thing you didn't do that, mate. <laughs> she she was a, she walked around in the crowds and she walked around, talked to everyone. She was, yeah. she was different, yeah. You tell a very funny story about a ride you had, I think in the Ascot Gull Cup, which is over two miles and three furlongs. And coming down the straight the first time, your mount was on the bridle a bit um, and you heard a jockey move up on your outside and he was actually singing to himself. Australian jockeys like horses travelled for him. Mm. Over there in England and Ireland and France, they just drop their hands and just let everything relax, which is the way it should be. Yeah. You know, they, the more that you relax, the more they got at the the end. And yeah, Willie Carson come up and he said, told me to keep bringing me hands back. He said, just bring back, let it relax, let it relax. He said, you'll never finish the race. Mm. Yeah, so yeah, he, he ended up winning the race. I run third. So he I stopped singing. Him. He stopped singing long enough to tell you that. Just he started. He was whistling and. Everything, yeah, just going along. He was yeah. a character, wasn't he? He was, yeah. Yeah. Kev, you rode a total of 241 winners outside of Australia and you tell me you were a much improved jockey after a couple of trips away. Is that the factor that made the difference, getting them to relax, particularly in the longer races? I, th- I think it was. I think it just helped me a lot. It looked. You don't know what you're what you're learning, but you're riding over there, and you know you're riding against Michael Canaan, Lester Piggott, Pat Edry, Willie Carson, Frankie Dettori. You know you're you're riding against the best there are in, in the world, type of thing. So you 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 you're learning things, and you're picking up little things, and um, 
Uh, yeah, so I, I think it made me a much better jockey, mm. much better jockey. And like those tracks over there, like they're up and down hills, and like Goodwood, you just couldn't believe how the hills there. And there's a track called Clamell in Ireland, and in in 600 metres, it'll go up three flights. It'll go up three stories. You know, it's so high. Uh, you just run up this big hill. Mm. First, you've got to come down the hill, and then you run up the hill. Mm. But you just learn, you know, more balance and everything. Uh, I was one of the first to come back with my toes in there, riding with my toes in the iron. We, we mm. always put our foot. And... Um, People used to say, oh, your toes in your irons. And, and, but I, I first brought it back because that's where I learned to ride over there. That's how they rode. Um, and then one day I rode a horse called Moena in the Silver Slipper. Should have won by five lengths, but my foot got knocked out of the, the iron. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, never put it, I never put my toes in again. I said, no, I'm going to ride like the, the normal people now. Mm. But everyone's brought up now to ride with their toes in the iron, and it just—if your toes in the iron—it just brings you that little bit more forward. Mm. So you're on top of the shoulder more. So you know, but Australia was never like it. But because all the jockeys go overseas now and do, do little trips here, it, it soon come back here that everyone was riding with their toes in the iron. We'll just pause for a moment to clear a commitment in segment two of our podcast with Kevin Moses. Back shortly. The catalogue for the 2020 Classic Yearling Sale is now available. In total, 808 yearlings have been catalogued over three days, 613 in book one, 195 in the highway session. Book one will take place on Sunday, February the 9th, Monday the 10th, and the morning of the 11th, with the highway session beginning as soon as book one is completed. The Classic Sale has produced eight Group 1 winners since 2018, including four Group 1 winning two-year-olds or three-year-olds in Sydney and Melbourne. Of the 808 lots catalogued, 734 are Bob's eligible. To request a catalogue, email catalogue at inglis.com.au or call 9399 7999. Catalogues are also available for the Inglis Premier Sale in Melbourne, March the 1st to March the 3rd. The 2020 Inglis Yearling Sale Round is about to begin. In 1996, a massive racing story exploded onto the front pages when the voices of a handful of Sydney jockeys were detected on police surveillance tapes engaged in conversation with a person who was of immense interest to the police department at that time. It appeared that the jockeys were tipping horses to a man who was codenamed Mr C. The jockeys were Jim Cassidy, Gavin Eads and Kevin Moses. You all got extended periods of disqualification, but it was more a case of who you were talking to rather than what you were talking about, wasn't it? 
John, it was... I, I got 12 months for bringing racing in this dispute. Um, the the, uh, the jockey tapes, well, they had a full royal commission into it, and they, the last two months they let me off. They, they said, well, I, I didn't do anything wrong. But because I'd, I, I went in and, and told John Shrek, yeah, I've spoke to this bloke three times, and, you know, I just... So, yeah, well, I got, and it was it was all because there was a certain, another jockey who was saying I'm paying this jockey and I've got this race rigged and I've got this done, but there was no races rigged, and and they had uh, John Shrek even he couldn't find anything in the races, so he even gave it to like Colin Tidy and some of those big bookmakers to go through and see if they could find out was there any problems in the races, but, um, yeah, anyway, I, I got, um, I got the 12 months and it only served 10 after the Royal Commission found out that I was innocent. Yeah. Once the investigation was over, you reapplied and you were back at the races in no time. Yeah. Yeah. Straight away. In the early 1990s, you enjoyed a massive winning run. You rarely missed a city or provincial meeting and had brought you three straight Sydney Jockeys Premierships. 91-92, you rode 86.5 winners. 92-93, you won 113 races. 93-94, you rode 102 winners. So, Kev, just add them up. In three seasons, you rode 301 and one dead heat. City winners, metropolitan winners. In in ninety three was a very good year. I broke the the record uh, of a hundred and ninety six winners riding in provincials and country. Mm. Uh, so it was a great year. Uh, like it's been smashed since. I think Darren smashed it a few years later. But it was good to hold the record for a short time. Mm. You didn't restrict yourself just to the city tracks, though. You you were all of the Thursday provincial meetings. Yeah. I, I I liked riding and I was light and I didn't have to do it hard. Um, yeah, so I I I, enjoy, and I had a great group of people to ride for. You know, it was um, yeah, like some of those horses I rode for Denim. Mm-hmm. In those days, I just pointed in the right, just put its head out of the barriers and it'd win. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jack Denham took a shine to you for a while there, as he did with a lot of jockeys, but you could never be sure that it was long-term, could you? Oh, he, 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 I rode for him for a few years. He was He's a great man. Um, he was very tough, and he'd, you'd, you'd, you'd be three deep, and he'd say, oh, you're a boundary rider, you're a boundary rider, and, you know. <laughs> and then he, he'd say to you, why didn't you get in there? And I said, come on, we're going to have a look at this again. Mm. Show me where I could have got in. Yeah. And, you know, he, he, was, uh, uh, he, he, was, he was a good man and a, and a very kind man. A lot of people didn't like him, but he was, uh, mm. yeah, I liked him a lot. It's often said that the ranks of Sydney jockeys in this day and age are stronger than ever. Surely they're no stronger than they were in your time, Kev. I know you've got three favourites 
for whom you had enormous respect. See if you can remember the three you told me once before. Well, as, as two two of them were when I first started, was um, Jim Cassidy, yep. Johnny Duggan, yep. and um, Peter Cook. Yeah, that's the three you gave me once before: Duggan, Cook, and Cassidy. Yeah, yeah. I, that Duggan, as I said, we we played in the same football team together, or represented together. One day at the races, I, I used to take an apple and eat an apple through the races. There's food there, but I, um, I, I didn't eat much food at the races. I just used to bite an apple, and he asked me for half the apple, and I, I didn't want to give him half the apple. I said I haven't got anything to cut it, so he grabbed it, he twisted it, and broke it straight in half. Goodness me! So I went home and. The apples actually come from Gary Moore. George Gary Moore was apprentice to Tommy Hill next door to me, mm-hmm. and his father used to bring a case of oranges and a case of apples. Mm-hmm. So I went back into Tommy Hill, got a few apples, went through nearly all of them trying to break. I just wanted to break one, couldn't break them. So I took three to the races the next day. He broke the three of them. But I got other jockeys to try to break them, and they couldn't break them. His wrists were so strong. Well, He's, Kevin, yeah, he, he was a great jockey. That th- that's an exclusive. That is an absolute exclusive. Never before in the history of racing media has anybody related the story that John Duggan could break an apple in half. Yeah, it's a scoop. As an apprentice, a scoop, as mate. An apprentice, as an apprentice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You couldn't wait to get home to try it, eh? I, and I'm still trying, still can't do it. <laughs> Kev, time's beaten us, but uh, it's been a delight to catch up and to reminisce about your long and brilliant career as a jockey and a trainer. Really appreciate your time on the podcast. Thanks so much and continued good luck. You, you would like a few more horses if you can get the accommodation. Uh I don't know. I'm I'm just happy at the moment because you know what? Now that I'm not riding at work, I got to stand around and wait for someone to come and ride at work. And then, mm. you know, it's it's staff in our business now is is not as good as when I was young. You know, you had all the people coming off farms and knew all horses. If we hadn't had the Indians or the Packies, mm. we're in trouble. But, you know, Gay, Gay and Anthony, they're, they're full of them. You know? yeah, they love horses, don't they? Well, they're not horse people, but they need the jobs. You know, like they, they need a, a job of a morning or something before they go. They can only work so many hours because they're on those student visas and everything. Mm. But, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of them are ex-jockeys that have come over for Gay and that. But, um, you know, to... To get the proper staff, it's it's getting tougher and tougher. No, no one wants to get up at four o'clock in the morning and go to work. It'll eventually change. It'll change. Something will come in and say, "Well, you know, you're not working in the dark and things." So it'll change. I don't know when, but it'll change. In the meantime, Grandpa, 
en- yeah. enjoy that one horse you've got and thank you so much for joining us. Very good, John. I was glad to talk to you. And you you've done some great research. Brought back old memories. Well, it was a pleasure to research Kevin Moses on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis.